kids, feel free to go ahead and head out to Children's Church. And so, adios for everyone else. Grab your Bibles. Turn with me to Judges chapter 6. Chapter 8, excuse me. Judges chapter 8. We have been in the series uh, called The Downward Spiral, doing the book of Judges. And uh, we have been in the story of what is the fourth judge in Israel by the name of Gideon. And so several of you uh, probably have heard bits and pieces of the story of Gideon. Last week, uh, we saw Gideon um, uh, move from... Uh, from fear to faith, and we see him triumphing uh, over uh, the Midianite army with great, uh, with great victory. Uh, we see God giving him the victory with a mere 300 men, uh, confusing uh, the Midianite army, sending them against themselves. And usually, typically, when you hear the story of Gideon preached, that's where the story stops, and it's a good stopping place. But this morning, we're going to see Gideon part three from faith to futility, because unfortunately... Unfortunately, that's not where the story of Gideon ends. Uh, it, it's not a happy ending, so to speak. And so what we're going to see this morning is Gideon, uh, the rest of the story, if you will, of Gideon. And we're going to see him move, uh, sadly enough, um, from faith to futility. I want to share a quick story before we jump into our text. Again, if you have your Bibles, uh, chapter 8, if you don't, the text will be up on the screen. Uh, share a quick story with you. Um, I don't know if you have ever had the pleasant or not so pleasant, really, experience of uh, finding a dead animal in your home. Any of you guys ever had that experience before? Okay, a few of you. Not so pleasant, is it? Uh, I want to share a quick story uh, about that. When I was in college, uh, I lived in a rent house. Uh, as actually my parents' house, but I paid the rent. Funny how that works, right? Um, but, uh, but it was, you know, my parents' house, and uh, I lived with two or three guys. And we were, you know, bachelors, and it was a great, great time. I enjoyed it. But we had a, uh, a washing machine and a dryer, of course, out in our garage. And uh, to make a long story very short, uh, it, was, it was summer that year, and I don't particularly remember the year, but it was summer. And in Texas, um, we are prone to have droughts. It gets very hot, it gets very humid, and oftentimes in Texas, in the middle of the summer especially, it gets very, very, very dry. And so we were in the middle of a particularly bad drought this year, and it was summer, and so uh, we were washing our clothes as we normally do. And one morning, I remember going to begin a load of laundry, and I just began to smell just, just a, a faint hint of something that, you know didn't quite smell right. It wasn't horrible. It by no means was overwhelming. But, you know, you walk into the room and you're like, hmm, you're using a new, you know, detergent or, you know, what's going on here? Something is not quite right. And so I didn't think anything of it. Uh, days uh, went by and as my roommates, you know, continued to wash their clothes, they would say, you know, have you smelled that? This just a, smelled a little stench, you know, in, in, in the garage. And I'm like, yeah, I smell that, but I'm not really sure what it is. And so uh, about a matter of about a week, week and a half passed by. And every time we would go in the garage, if you've had this experience, you know, the stench gets a little and a little and a little worse. And, and so at some point we recognize Something's not right here. You know, this is really getting bad. This, this, the smell was becoming overwhelming. And so we put our collective college heads together and we came up with the brilliant idea that there was a dead animal in our garage. I know, genius, right? That's why we go to college. And, uh, and so we, we started to look around and it was, you know, coming mostly from the washing machine or, or dryer area. And so we looked 
under, underneath the, the, you know, the machines, and we didn't see anything, and we kind of pulled them out, and we looked behind. You know, everywhere you would anticipate that possibly there would be a dead animal, and, and we couldn't find anything. Um, and, and really, we, we looked hard around up. We lifted the thing up. You know, we looked everywhere. No animal. And so we thought, what can we do? And so about a matter of a week passed by, and the, at that point, the stench was just overwhelming. I mean, you walk in and you you know that there is something wrong with the picture. It is bad. It make you want to gag kind of smell. And so the way that eventually we found the dead animal is uh, we started to do, my dad said, you know, this is what you need to do. You need to take apart the, the washing machine and the dryer. Take it apart. There may be something in the machine. And so I said, okay. And so uh, thankfully, my, the buddy of mine, my roommate, is more uh, mechanically inclined than I. And so he, he, he took it apart for me, and I'm like, okay. So we looked. Long story short, in the, in the washing machine, we found a dead rat. A dead rat in the actual machine, like in the, you know what I mean, in the parts, not where you could see it. We had to take it apart, and we find this dead rat. And we also found that there were a line, the water line, was chewed up. And we put two and two together, and we figured that this poor rat didn't have any water. The drought was so bad that the rats were coming into the homes and was trying to find water from our washing machine, and he ended up dying there. Um, I don't know if you've ever had that kind of experience. It's, it's unpleasant, to say the least. This morning, this morning, in the story of Gideon, Gideon goes from faith to futility. And as we read our story this morning, we're going to summarize a good portion of Scripture, and then we're going to camp on Judges chapter 8. But as we summarize uh, kind of the rest of Gideon's story, and then as we camp in Gideon's chap- Gideon chapter, uh, Judges chapter 8, what we're going to find out is that the smell of the story is going to get progressively worse and worse. We're going to see Gideon doing some things that, well, aren't quite right. It just doesn't smell right. Things are happening, and, and the story is, is, is gonna, it's going to take a downward spiral, and the stench is going to get worse and worse and worse to where it culminates in chapter 8. It culminates in chapter 8, and if you haven't smelled the foul stench of immorality and unfaithfulness and futility, at that point, when you get to chapter 8, which is where we're going to camp, you will indeed smell it. The stench will be raunchy, and we will find the proverbial dead rat in chapter 8. So what I'd like to do at this point is try my hand at summarizing uh, kind of a good portion of scripture here um, uh, for the Gideon story. And so the first uh, section, if you will, as we continue on, if you remember uh, from last week, uh, Gideon leads his 300 men, they blow the trumpets, they break the pots, the fire appears, the Midianites are like, whoa, there's a big army, let's kill each other, you know, that kind of thing. And they start to turn on one another, and they start to flee. And God gives this wonderful victory to Gideon. And so I want to summarize uh, what happens next. And so let's see the first point here. Summarize some scripture. Uh, Right immediately after that in verse 23, going to round about chapter 8, verse 3, we see Ephraim's anger. Essentially, uh, what Gideon does is the Midianites are on the run. They're running. They're fleeing. And so Gideon says, come on, guys, let's go get the bad guys. And he calls several tribes uh, from the nation of Israel to come help to come pursue the enemies. And one of those tribes, Ephraim, shows up to help, but we see that Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, is not particularly happy. And he, they criticize Gideon, and essentially what they say is, hey, why didn't you call us to the battle sooner? Why didn't you call us to be part of your 300 men? Uh, we missed out on the action. And so they criticize Gideon, and they say, hey, we got, we got left out here. What's going on? And so we see in this uh, chapter, or uh, this portion, Ephraim's anger... 
we see that Israel begins to criticize. We see that Israel, God's people, begins to criticize one another. And the smell begins to appear. It's faint, but it begins to appear. Secondly, uh, we have Gideon's threats. Uh, that is essentially is found in verses 4 through 9. And as the story continues, uh, what we see happening is that Gideon uh, pursues the enemy. He continues to chase, and particularly these two kings that are on the loose. And he's chasing them, and he uh, is chasing them all the way to the border of Israel. So if you can imagine in your mind, uh, these Midianites king, kings are... are, are uh, are heading home. They're ready. They don't want any more of this. Uh, they are heading home, and they cross over the border into their home, uh, into their homeland. And so Gideon follows them all the way up to the border of Israel and Midian, and he wants to follow them into the border. He really is pursuing these two kings all the way across the border of Israel, which is significant, and we'll talk about that in a second. But essentially, his men are tired, as you can imagine. They've been fighting all day. Apparently, their supplies have run low, and so they need help. And so the natural thing to do is uh, Gideon comes to these two cities in Israel, these border towns, if you will, with Midian, and he says, hey, give us some help. We need some food. We need some supplies. Would you help us out? And essentially what we see is that uh, uh, the two cities uh, uh, of Israel say, no, we're not going to help you out. We're not really sure you're going to win. I mean, think about it. They're chasing these, uh, this army, 15,000 strong, in fact. This army is fleeing, and they see these, uh, these men go across their town, and they're like, but what if you lose? You don't have them in, in, your, in your hands yet, do you? And if you lose, guess who's going to get the retaliation? We are. So they're like, no, we're not going to do that. And so what Gideon does is he threatens them. He says, fine, if you're not going to help me, I'm going to take my vengeance out on you. I'm going to get the kings, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to teach you a lesson. And so that's what we have, Gideon's threats. Moving on, verses 10 through 17, we move from Gideon's threats to Gideon's revenge. And what we see, kind of culminating in the story, is he captures the two kings. He brings the two kings back to these two Israelite cities. And he essentially does what he promised he would do to them. For the first city, he took all of the elders of the city, he brings them out publicly, and he tortures them. Publicly, he whips them on the back to teach them a lesson. That's not a good thing to do. Secondly, the second city, he comes and he takes all of the men of the city. These are Israelites. These are God's people. And he takes all of the men of the city and he kills them. Not only does he do that, but he takes the the fort, the stronghold, the protection for this Israelite city. It's a border town and he destroys it. So he takes revenge on his own people. So the, the faint uh, smell uh, is beginning to grow. It's, it's, beginning, it's becoming noticeable. Gideon threatens his own people. And then Israel's judge, who's supposed to save Israel, who's supposed to rescue them from oppression, begins to be the oppressor. And so the, the smell is getting stronger and stronger as we go through the story. Something something's not right. Something is just not right. The fourth section here is verses 18 through 21. And I've entitled it Gideon's Discovery. Here, essentially what we see is Gideon turns from dealing with his own people in a vengeful, revengeful way. And he begins to have a conversation with these two kings, these two Midianite kings. And and to make a long story short, what we find out is that uh, we find out the reason why Gideon has been doing everything he's been doing up until this point. What we find out is that these two kings had killed all of Gideon's brothers in battle. We find out in an, in an unnamed battle, we don't know when, we don't know exactly how it happened, but we come to find out that these two very kings that he's pursuing so hard 
actually killed his brothers. And so Gideon says, hey, if you would have let my brothers go, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have even pursued you. I wouldn't have killed you. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have sought you. But because you killed my brothers, I'm going to kill you. And so the big point here is that we find out the motive of Gideon. Gideon, at that point, after God had given them a miraculous victory, he's not, he's not pursuing the enemy for God's purposes. He's pursuing the enemy for his purposes. And his purpose is revenge. That is why he, he threatens his own people. That's why he oppresses and kills his own people. Because it's about him. It's about seeking revenge. He is driven. He is on a quest for revenge. How many of you have seen the movie Princess Bride? The Princess Bride? Okay. Good little movie. I want to show a real quick uh, compilation of clips here. You may be familiar. There's one character uh, by the name of Montoya is his last name. But the whole, <laughs> what's his first name? You guys know? Thank you. I can't say it. I don't, I don't want to look stupid. On stage, so I'm like, I don't know his last name. But during a good portion of the movie, he is driven. We see this, this, this quest to seek revenge. There was a man who killed his father when he was a young boy. and He seeks after revenge. He's so bloodthirsty. And so I want to show just a couple of clips here because I think this is exactly what Gideon is like. I will go up to the six-finger man and say, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. (laughs) All right. Uh, There's more, and he says it more and more and more. But you get the point. If you've seen the movie, you know that's a reoccurring theme. He wants to get back. He wants to seek revenge for his father's death, and it drives him. In fact, the whole purpose of his life is to seek revenge. And brothers and sisters, this is exactly the foul stench that we get from Gideon's life. He is on the road from faith to futility, seeking revenge instead of the Lord's will. So that lands us in our text this morning. That's a real quick summary of Gideon's story, but really we see Gideon's story end in chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to get them out with me. Judges chapter 8, starting round about verse 22. And what we see is this is kind of a capstone, this is kind of a summary of how Gideon uh, concluded his life. And I think we're going to see some really interesting points. I've entitled this section, The Kingship of Gideon. And I intentionally put kingship in quotations because, well, we'll see. So what we have, starting uh, in verse 22 is that Gideon has won the victory, he's captured the Midianite kings, he's killed them, and he has brought peace, if you will, to Israel. And so after the victory, in a moment of zeal, in my opinion, uh, we see the men of Israel wanting to make Gideon king. And so let's read this together in verse 22, starting in our text. Verse 22, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son, and your grandson also. And here's the reason. For you have saved us, you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And so here we have an offer of kingship. And not just an offer of kingship from the men of Israel, but an offer of dynasty. Do you see that? He says, you rule over us and your son after you, and then your grandsons after you. And so here is the first time in scripture to where Israel wants a king. We see that happening with Saul later in history, but it happens actually earlier. They want to appoint a king. Now, why is that so bad? 
Why is that really so bad? Well, we find out later that, um, and even before from uh, the rest of the Bible and the Old Testament in particular, that uh, the way that God's people was set up is that it was a theocracy, which essentially means that the king is not a human king. The king is supposed to be God. God is supposed to rule over them. God is supposed to be their king. They don't need a human king. The people think, oh, you've given us this great victory. You're a military man. You're going you're to save us from our enemies, so you become king. When actually, it was God who saved them. It was God who had given them victory. And so, needless to say, this is a, an ill-advised request. And we see Gideon's response in verse 23. He recognizes this. He's not exactly the most spiritual of men, as we can tell from our past two stories. But he knows enough to reject this offer. He knows enough that God is king and that he is not supposed to be king. And so let's read in verse 23 his response to this. Verse 23. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. Here's the reason why. The Lord will rule over you. And so Gideon has it right. Gideon has good theology, if you will. He has good doctrine. He has right belief. He knows that he's not supposed to be king. There is not supposed to be an earthly king in Israel for God's people. God is king. God will rule over us. And so at this point, we're like, yay, Gideon. Good job, man. You answered the, you answered the call. You did well. You rejected the offer of kingship. You did right. And so it would be good if the story ended at this point. But it doesn't. The story doesn't end at this point. And the question that I want to pose to you is, as we look at the rest of the details from Gideon's life, the rest of our text is kind of a summary of how Gideon lived out the rest of his life in Israel. And the question that I really want to pose is, does Gideon really believe that? I mean, does Gideon really, actually believe that the Lord is king and rules over his people and that they don't need an earthly king. Does he really show that with his actions? Do, do his actions back up his words? Does his orthodoxy, his right thinking, his right believing, lead to orthopraxy, lead to right living? Or is there a huge disconnect between what he thinks he believes in his mind and what he lives out in his life? And what I want to pose to you is that while Gideon in his mind knew and believed to some extent that God was king in Israel, that his actions demonstrate to us otherwise. And I want to show you four reasons, four reasons why I think we see the kingship of Gideon. Gideon is going to, he's going to reveal the, reveal the rat in the washer. It gets really stinky here. It gets really smelly. It was pretty bad before. But the rat's going to be revealed. Four reasons. Reason number one. It's found in verses 24 through 26. In verses 24 through 26, essentially what we see Gideon doing is taxing the people. That's what kings did. If you were a king back then, you taxed your people. And this is exactly what Gideon does. And so let's notice. Read with me verses 24 through 26. So Gideon says, I'm not going to rule over you, but I do have a request. Verse 24. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request for you, of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. That is the people that they had conquered. Verse 25. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. Verse 26. And the weight of the golden earrings that uh, that he had, that he requested... (laughs) 
was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the neck of the camels. And so reason number one, reason number one why Gideon is actually acting like a king is because he taxes the people. Uh, to a tune of about 42 pounds of gold, if you do the math. So he gets a pretty substantial chunk of change here, 42 pounds of gold, from this tax. But this is what kings did. They took a portion of the spoil from the victories of war. And so from the very beginning, uh, we see Gideon saying, I'm not going to be king over you. God is king. But let me tax you. Can, can, I, can I tax you? And they say, sure, we're going to do that. Reason number two, not only does Gideon tax the people, but he, and this is where the rat is revealed, he builds a, he builds a place of worship. In verses 27 through 28, what we see Gideon doing is establishing an, an altar, a location for national worship in Israel. That is other than the place that God had, had prescribed. Only kings do this kind of thing. In the Bible. Verses 27 through 28. Let's read this together. There we go. And Gideon made an ephod of it, and he put it in his city, in Orpha. And all of Israel, notice that, and all of Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon into his family. Verse 28. So Midian was subdued. Before the people, the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. And so the question is, Gideon requires this tax, this gold. And so what does he decide to do with it? Oh, Gideon, 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 Gideon. He takes the fatal towards the fatal turn towards futility. What he does is he makes an ephod out of this gold that the people had given to it. And that gold statue or idol, whatever it is, uh, became a place of worship. It says that all of Israel, all of the people, not just in his town, but all of the people came and they worshipped it. And the biblical language is strong. They whored after it. That is, they were an adulteress in their relationship with God. They cheated on God by worshipping at this place. Uh, you may be asking, as I was, um, what exactly was this thing that he built? It says that he built an ephod. Okay, what's an ephod? Well, we don't, the long and short of it is we don't exactly know what he built. Uh, there are several options. I'll just give you some quick ones. Uh, in the Old Testament, the high priest in Israel, the high priest, wore this garment called an ephod. And it was kind of like a vest kind of thing, if you will. But it didn't have as much gold as what... Gideon had. And so what some people think is that it was kind of a, it was a, a high priestly garment that Gideon was making himself high priest in Israel, which was so wrong. And it just had some extra gold on it. And it could have been just an idol. In fact, some commentators think that, remember what he did earlier, his hometown, Orpha. He went in and God said, tear down the idol of Baal, right? You remember that? And he tore down the idol. Well, it's very possible that he could have rebuilt the idol of Baal here, reestablished idol worship and put this golden garment on this idol. We don't know. It's very possible. Thirdly, which is probably less likely, but possible, it could have been a statue to Gideon himself. <laughs> he could have said, man, I had this great victory. Let's take this gold and make a cute image and, you know, less fat and a better looking face, you know, make this image of me. And all of Israel came because he delivered them and worshiped 
him, essentially. We don't know exactly what it was, but that's not the point. What the point is, is that only kings could establish centers of worship. Wrongly so. We see it later in the history of Israel that kings would do this. They would reestablish pagan uh, places of worship. Gideon is acting like a king. And the very sad thing about it is that, uh, is that he did this in his hometown. He did this in the place where literally two or three days earlier, he tore down an idol altar. He tore down the altar of Baal. And he built an altar to the Lord. Just one or two days later, and two or three days later, one or two days later, here he is building an idol in the very same place that he tore one down. He is reestablishing national idolatry in the nation of Israel. And so you see with Gideon, with all of the judges, they're supposed to help. They're supposed to not only deliver God's people from the military aspect, but they were in that mess in the first place. Why? Because of idolatry. The judges are supposed to make Israel better, not worse. Israel had gone full circle. Do you see that? Israel had gone full circle from worshiping Baal to worshiping whatever it was that Gideon has made. Some judge. Some judge. They had gone full circle. They were right back at where they started. Right back where they started. Have you ever, have you ever had that experience before? Uh, many of you probably are a little better directionally than me. Uh, but if you've ever had the experience of going in circles, don't laugh, John. You've seen me. <laughs> John and I went to a conference once. And uh, I, I parked my car somewhere, and I was like, John, help me remember this. And so I went out on my own for some reason. He was sick, so I was trying to find my car. And I'm like going in circles. You know, I'm going in circles in this uh, a parking garage, which I hate parking garages. Everything looks the same. And I'm going in circles. I'm like, where's my car? It's been stolen in Chicago. And I call my wife. I'm like, where's my car? Everything looks the same. She's like, are you on the right level? I'm like, oh, I don't know. So I, so I go up one and I go down one, and lo and behold, guess what? My car is on the level below. <laughs> I was going in circles. I was seeing the same thing. Maybe you've had that kind of experience before. I was right back when I, where I started. Another quick story to kind of illustrate this. Uh, by permission, I asked my mother-in-law, who's here today, by the way, just by happenstance, that she would come where I'm going to talk about her in a very good light, of course. Um, but when we moved to Dallas, uh, uh, we got married, and uh, we uh, were in seminary uh, apartments. And it was really close to downtown, just a few blocks to downtown Dallas. And we had just moved in, so we weren't really familiar with the roads. And uh, my mother-in-law was coming in from Tulsa, and so she was driving in. And, and, you know, long story short, she was really close, and she took an exit. And in downtown Dallas, it's kind of like if you take the wrong exit... That's a bad thing, you know. It's really easy to get lost. And so she uh, takes the wrong exit and, uh, and finds herself into downtown. And not only was she in downtown, which is full of one-way streets like a lot of downtowns are, it's kind of confusing, but apparently they were doing construction that day. And so there were signs blocking off where you could go. And she kind of knew the general direction that she was supposed to go. But the long story short is she ended up kind of circling around downtown Dallas, seeing the same thing over and over and over again for what, like two hours maybe, hour and a half? I mean, talk about frustration. Do you know this street? No, I don't. I'm here. Do you know where I'm at? No, sorry. (laughs) For an hour and a half. I've been here before. I've been here before. I see that building. The point is this. Israel had seen that building before. They had seen the building of idolatry before. 
And they were right back where they started. So the smell, the rat has been found. The rat has been found. So reason number one, Gideon taxes the people. Reason number two, he builds a place of worship. Uh, Reason number three, these are a little bit shorter. Verses 29 through 30. We see a little bit about the personal life of Gideon. And what we find out is that Gideon, Gideon had lots of wives. And Gideon has lots of kids. Verse 29 through 30. 29. Jerubal, which is the name given to him by his father, Gideon, Jerubal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Verse 30. Now Gideon had 70 sons. 70 sons. I can only keep up with one. 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. He had many wives. So this seems just kind of like a, why is this in here? I'll tell you the reason why it's in here. Gideon was acting very much like kings would in that day. Because if you were a king, you wanted to secure your, your lineage, your heritage. You wanted to secure the kingship, of course, which came through sons. And so you wanted to have as many sons as you possibly could, just in case the first 69 happened to die. Number 70 would take your throne. You know what I mean? Way overboard. But he, that's what they would do. They would have as many sons as possible to secure their kingship. And of course, if you want to have that many sons, you have to have a lot of wives because, you know, as far as I know, 70 sons, one wife, <laughs> that's a rough life. You know what I mean? Um, and so he had tons of wives, tons of wives, which was very wrong, by the way, according to the Old Testament. Kings were not supposed to do that. Deuteronomy 17:17. 17, 17. Very interesting. Deuteronomy 17:17 17, 17 says uh, to a king in Israel, God's king, God's appointed king. But the law said, one, don't have many wives and don't accumulate a lot of gold and silver. What is Gideon doing? He's accumulating gold and he's having a bunch of wives. He is acting like the bad king that God forewarned about. And so he has 70 sons. In addition, interestingly enough, um, when you look at Outside sources, uh, outside of the Bible, like archaeology and uh, parchments that are found and those kind of things. Uh, what, they, what they say is that in that time period, in that era, that the number 70 was like the ideal number for a royal household. So if you wanted to have a perfect royal family, what you would have is 70 sons. And so all of this is pointing to the fact that Gideon saw himself as king. He was living like the king of Israel, even though he said, God is king. God is king. Reason number four. And this, as far as I'm concerned, is the nail in the coffin. Verses 31 through 32. We see what Gideon names one of his sons. Verses 31 and 32. And his concubine, who is in Shechem, also bore him a son. Okay. So at this point, you're like, seriously. You have have a ton of wives. You have 70 sons. Do you really need a concubine? I mean, seriously. Okay, apparently he did. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And his name, and he called his name Abimelech. Abimelech. And it concludes in verse 32. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Orpha of the Abazirites. Okay, so we have the story of Gideon concluded from faith to futility. Fourth reason. Gideon names his son Abimelech. Now, if you don't know Hebrew, you're like, okay, 
Weird name. Whatever, <laughs> you know. But this is really significant. Anyone know what Abimelech means? I'd be really impressed if you do. Okay. If, if you do, that's okay. Hebrew, Avi, Avi, uh, my dad, my dad, Melech, king. My dad is king. That's what he names his son. My dad is king. So let me ask you, Gideon says, this is what I believe, this is my theology. God, you are really the king. I'm going to reject formally the offer of kingship. Does he really believe it? I mean, to some degree, yes, he, he does. I think he believes it, but does he really? Does he let his theology affect his life? And I would venture to say, for all of these four reasons, no, no. Gideon is playing the role of a king. The rat has been found. It's a stinky stench. And the story of Gideon concludes, one day he was full of faith. He had overcome his fears. And now he leads Israel and himself right back into futility. So applications in closing. So what? Cool story. Interesting details. What does it mean? Uh, a, a couple big, big points here. A couple things I want us to take away. If we could move to the next slide. The first application point uh, is this. We are all hypocrites. I think that's a big, a big thing here. I think that's the major application, is that we, from time to time, some more than others, can be hypocritical. We can allow our, uh, our living not to match our theology. Our orthodoxy doesn't really affect our orthopraxy. Our actions don't really match our beliefs. And you may, it's really easy for us to kind of go through this and, and like really give Gideon a hard time. Man, you said you weren't going to be king and you were king. What a loser, you know? You said this and you said you believed it, but you really don't. It really hasn't affected your life. And we can just get all huffy and puffy about Gideon. But man, are we so much, am I so much like Gideon? We are all hypocrites from time to time and we don't really we don't really believe what we say we believe. There are areas in our life to where we believe it intellectually. We believe it because the Bible says so, but it hasn't gone through the filter of our life. And if someone was to ask us, does your life support what you say you believe? No way. Just like, just like Gideon. Several areas. Just throw out a few. Evangelism. How many of you think it's good? Should we, re- should we tell people about Jesus? You better raise your hands. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, that's good. Because <laughs> then we'll have to have some counseling sessions afterwards. And, and I want to have lunch. So, um, Okay, e- evangelism. Yeah, I believe in it. I do. I think it's good. It's important. Oh, you know, Jesus said to do it, so we should do that. You know. Okay, I think we would all say that that's something that we believe. Do we? <laughs> I mean, do you really? Do I? Really? When was the last time, me and you, all of us, when was the last time that you actually attempted to articulate something about Jesus to someone who didn't know about him? It didn't even have to be the crystal clear gospel presentation. It didn't have to be the Roman road. Anything. When was the last time you said Jesus to someone who didn't know Jesus? When was the last time that I did that? When was the last time you actually shared a little bit about your faith? It doesn't have to be the whole story. It doesn't have to be an hour long. When was the last time that you actually articulated a little bit about how Jesus has affected your life? Do you value evangelism? Do I? Yeah, I do. 
Do we really? Who are you praying for? Who are you having over for dinner? Who is it that you're trying to invest in, to build relationships with, to love them, and to, God willing, have an opportunity to share? Who are those people? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? Anyone? Evangelism. Investing in eternity. Okay, you don't have to raise your hands on this one. But I would venture most of you say you really want to make an impact on eternity. You know, you really want to do that. You don't want to get to heaven and Jesus is like, what did you do for me? You don't, you don't want that. You really want to make a difference. And I do too. I want to invest my time, my effort, my money, my energy in eternity. We believe that, don't we? Shake your heads, yes. Okay, we do. Do you, do we really? I mean, it, when you think about your finances, how much you give to church or other organizations or other people that you really feel like is a kingdom impact might have an opportunity to impact the kingdom. When you look at that chunk of, of change, and then we look at all of the things that are good, like vacation and eating out and our electronical toys and trips and, you know, hey, I'm taking a trip here in a few weeks. I can't say much about it. But, you know, when you look at in comparison, what does it look like? If someone were, were to purely look at your checkbook, what would they say that you value with your money, with your time, with your energy? What is it that we really value? I think all of us who are, um, well, all of us, I can't include myself in this, all of you who are wives, I'm obviously not a wife, um, in case you didn't know, um, I have a wife, um, you would say, I think I should respect my husband. You know, the Bible says it. Paul says it. Yeah, I believe that I should respect my husband. If I really pinned you on it, put a gun to your head, you would say, okay, I believe that. But if you were to tally up, and I wouldn't suggest husbands doing this, but if you were to tally up all of the negative comments that you make towards your husband, and it didn't even have to be the words, just the tone, disrespectful comments, tones, as opposed to all of the ones in a, in a given day that are positive, that are encouraging, that are honoring to him, which would outweigh? Do you really respect? Do you really believe you should respect your husband? Husbands, you're not off the hook. I, if I were to pin you to a, to a wall, I, you would probably say, I should love my wife. Paul said it, probably should do it. But it's in the Bible, love my wife, I should do that. Similar situation. If you were to count in a given day how many times you intentionally did something to encourage her, to lighten her load, did the dishes, took out the garbage, things that, you know, you're supposed to do, and if it's like my household, my wife reminds me to do it because I'm not very good at that. Um, intentionality. If you just praised her, this is a really good dinner. I appreciate that. Hey, thanks for watching the kids all day, even though they drive you nuts. Whatever. Those kind of comments, as opposed to the comments that either you make or you want to make and you don't, <laughs> it's in your mind, that are negative, critical, which would, which would be more? I, I think I should love my wife. Do I really live it out? What about prayer? If I were to take a, a vote, we would all say, okay, we should pray, it's good, it's important, it changes lives, all of those things. If I look at my life, I'm like, man... If I really believe that, I'd pray a lot more. I think, well, I'm busy, I have to do this, I have to do that. Man, Martin Luther said, I'm too busy not to pray. That's what Martin Luther said. I'm too busy not to pray. I can just go on and on. 
but we're all hypocrites to some degree. We don't allow our theology to affect our lives. Second and final application is this. The fall to futility is fast. The fall to futility is fast. And we see this very clearly in, in, in Gideon. I mean, literally, like two days before all of these things happened, he is fearful. God encourages him. He takes leaps of faith. He builds two altars to the Lord. He is used in a mighty way. Uh, you know, clay pots, boom, 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 300 men. Wow, incredible victory. And God took him from fear to faith. It was like the pinnacle for him. He was on top of the world in obedience to God. And like the very next morning, he's killing his own people. The very next morning, the very next day, or soon thereafter, He's building idols. <laughs> the fall to futility is fast. Any roller coaster fans in here? Roller coaster? Dan. I would have guessed that. Um, I was really afraid of roller coasters growing up because I don't like heights. And so, uh, you know, if you get me on like a ramp, I'm like, ah, <laughs> five feet, you know, on, on top of a ladder. I'm like, hold me, you know. <laughs> I'm afraid of heights. I really am. Don't make fun of me. But, uh, and so I didn't like him. Long and short, when I was in high school, someone made me get on it, and I'm like, this is the best thing ever. So fun. You're pretty safe. You know, you're high, but you're, it's so fast, you can't think about it. And so I, I, like, I like roller coasters. Um, but the, the part that I really don't like about roller coasters is the going up. And if you've been in a roller coaster, you know that it's slow and methodical, right? Click, click. Click, 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 right? And for someone who is afraid of heights, I'm like, oh, God, please don't help me. Please don't let this tip over. I mean, seriously, I pray that way because I am, I'm scared of that thing going up and you look over and you're, it's really tall. And then, so it's, it's slow and methodical. But then once you start going down that steep incline, it's all good. It's all fun. It's all games, you know. It's really good. Um, and that's kind of how I think spirituality to a large degree is. Um, we grow in our faith, click, 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 click. We take steps, we grow. Our character is changed, click, 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 click. It's slow, it's methodical, God's changing us. But we can get to the top. We make a wrong step here or there. And boom, we are flying down the roller coaster of sin and futility. We're killing our own people and worshiping idols. The fall to futility is fast. And so a couple of applications... We need to watch our steps closely. We need to watch our steps closely. Um, Gideon did not watch his steps closely. Just, if you're in a relationship, a dating relationship, just, just a little more physica- physicality, just, just a little more kissing, just, just a little more, it's no big deal, and you end up waking up next to the person the next morning. The fall to futility is really, really fast. Just one drink, no big deal. It's fine. You can handle it. Just another. Just one more. Just one more. You can handle it. And the fall to alcoholism can boom. Just like that. Just like that. You're playing the argument over and over in your mind how you're going to respond to that person and to what they said. And it simmers, it simmers. And just like that, it's flowing out of your mouth. There's language and a bunch of junk. It just happens just like that. Watch our steps closely. Secondly, we need to watch our relationship with God closely. And these two are related, obviously. Uh, the, the fall from faith to utilities is fast. 
it's just one Bible reading. It's no big deal. I can, I can miss that today, and I can miss that tomorrow. And it becomes less and less of a priority, and eventually you only bring your Bible to church on Sundays. And you're like, Habakkuk, where's that? I don't know. You know, fault of utility is fast. Well, I'm really tired this morning. I, don't, I just don't want to go to church. I just don't feel like it. Just, just don't feel like it. Well, there's a show that I really want to go to, so I'm going to go. Okay, I can miss church this, this once. And the fall to, we don't see it in three months, can be really, really fast. Obviously, our relationship with Jesus is much more than those two things. But for example. So in closing, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you guys to pray with me. And I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. And, so, and we're going to sing, we're going to respond. But I want to give you just a few, minute, a few minutes just to, just to chew on this. To chew on it. To ask God to reveal these areas in your life. And so, t- worship team, come on up. If everyone else would pray with me. Father, we...